It is with great excitement that we welcome the great Rabbi Schaefer in to the podcast. Most of you probably already know that name from Rabbi Schaefer's platform, The Schmooze, a website of teaching Torah and Musser ideas at a very large scale, and also based on the new best-selling book, 10 Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make. And the book promises to be a Torah-based guide to a successful marriage. And, well, the book helped me. It's Torah-based, and it is a masterpiece. So, without further ado, welcome Rabbi Schaefer to the podcast. Michal, thank you. Hi. Pleasure to be here. Oh, Baruch Hashem. So, I know that most of the olam, most of the audience, does know Rabbi Schaefer. Um, but it may, I think, perhaps if the Rav could just maybe give a short uh, introduction as to the what the schmooze is, how it came to be, and perhaps a little bit about the Rav's background and how the book came to be, just to kick it off. Sure. sure. Okay, so I began as a high school rebbe. I was in Chavetz Chaim Yeshiva for many years, and I was a high school rebbe in Rochester. Uh, and many years ago, the Rosh Hashanah Rabbi Leibowitz asked me to start a Tveres Benator, which was a working, an organization for the working guys. These were guys who had been in yeshiva, and maybe they learned a lot, maybe they learned very little. The common side was they were now in the workforce, and Rosh itself felt there was nothing for them. So the schmooze really began as sort of a lightning rod. And then we had Kola Bokers, we had morning programs, night programs, various programs. It was in Queens, Brooklyn, Muncie. And, and the schmooze was really the central port of that. And uh, that was really my involvement. And the schmooze kind of grew into its own entity. Uh, and this is really 20 years now. Wow, 20 years in the making. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. I, I, I know I'm only 39. It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> um, but the Chazi it's still around. And that's really uh, where it came to be. Wow. The schmooze functions as a just a website? Is it an app? So the shoes we have the shoes.com, the shoes app, the shoes podcast. The idea is Ashkafa, Musser, basics, what all the thinking questions that a, a from Jew should be asking, should be dealing with. Why does Hashem create me? What's life about? Really dealing with Emuna Bitachan, all of the issues that we should be dealing with. That's what the shoes deals with. And it really is in many different formats, many different ways, books, etc. The Shmooz is focused on Tivrei Musser and inspiration and Emuna and Bitachon. So with uh, business successful and people learning Tyra at a very large scale, so why the uh, left turn to the talk of the book, which for anyone that doesn't know uh, about Shalom Bias and keeping harmony in the home? Right. Okay, it's a fair question. So really, as the Shmooz began growing, I became sort of the and center point for many of the issues. Guys would come to me with problems, issues. Now, when we began, the questions were innocent enough, uh, and the issues they were dealing with were simple enough. But as the guys started getting married and they started bringing in marriage questions, you know, again, in the first few years, it was also, again, there were innocent questions. How do I deal with my mother-in-law? How do I deal with this problem? And I felt, you know, able to deal with them. I was a few years older. I'd gone through some of life already. It wasn't a problem. But as the Hebra got older... The questions became more deep, and the issues became far more intractable. And I found myself in a very interesting dilemma. A couple would come to me with a problem in the marriage, and I didn't have a clue what the problem was, how to deal with it, how to solve it. At the time, I'd been married maybe 15 years or so, and Berkshire, we're happily married. But, you know, to understand how to sort of analyze someone else's marriage, what's going wrong, and how to repair it, it wasn't something I was equipped with. 
And uh, really, to be honest with you, in the first few years, I we lost quite a number of those couples. They, you know, a lot of divorces, and uh, and I found myself in a terrible situation where they would come to me as das Torah, they would come to me for my advice, and I didn't have a clue. So I would take couples to marriage counselors, marriage therapists, and to be honest with you, many marriage therapists had less of a knowledge than I did. So I began studying, I began learning, I began getting into this. And again, initially, I can't say that everything I said was rocket science, but when you deal with hundreds and hundreds of couples, and after many years, you start studying what works and what doesn't work, and you read the chazals, and you read the books, and you begin putting together certain ideas, after a while, I I felt I got a pretty good handle on why marriages succeed and why they fail, and more importantly, what they really need for a couple to be happily married. Now, along the way, this was sort of an experience for me. I would deal with couples who would come into my office, and oftentimes my jaw would drop. Husband here, wife over here, and they'd be saying things that I'd say to myself, there's no way in the world that they can understand the damage that they're bringing to this marriage. There's no way she can understand, no way he can understand. There's no way rational people would wreck their marriage this way. I don't get it. But when you see couple after couple making the same dumb mistakes, Mm. I began to realize, I get it. It's clearly not so obvious. So the 10 really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make grew out of my informal marriage counseling, marriage practice. I'm not a marriage therapist. I'm not a marriage counselor. But again, after dealing with hundreds and hundreds of couples, and I still to this day, I'll see a couple one time, I sort of give them some direction. I'm not a marriage therapist by profession. I don't make my living this way. But after seeing enough of it, you begin to put the patterns together, begin to put the ideas together. And what you do is, hopefully, you, you give some direction and advice. And that's really what the book is, direction and advice, how to live a happier marriage than most many people do. To jump on that, if the Rav has the Messiah, right, and the Rav obviously has a successful marriage and things are working out, what, what, what changed? Well, why, uh, why couldn't it just be, well, uh, be nice to your spouse and uh, stop leaving your socks on the floor and let's, come on, be mechazek, mm-hmm. like a regular schmooze? Right, right, right. So I guess you'd be right in theory, but the problem is that life has changed dramatically both since I was a young man, and certainly, you know, you look back in the 1950s, the United States of America, those are happy days. A young man would marry a young woman, they'd buy a house in the suburbs with a white picket fence, 1.5 kids and a dog, and live marily, married happily ever after. <laughs> those days uh, are gone. Times are changing. And uh, we no longer live in those times, and marriage has changed dramatically. The amount of time that a young couple will spend together, you know, let me start this way. Every marriage needs an adjustment. There's an adjustment period, learning to live with another person, learning to learn different, you know, basically basic tendencies, quirks, different gender differences. So no matter when you got married, there was an adjustment period and there was strife and there were issues. But in the good old days, number one, there was time. Both parties understood divorce wasn't an option. Once divorce became an option, immediately both parties are headed for the doors. And number two, we're dealing at a time where people are extraordinarily self-centered. And I have to be honest with you, also developmentally, emotionally, no longer as robust, no longer as as resilient as they had been. And I have to tell you, marriages now don't last. The, the speed of the divorce, I believe the land speed record was recently set. A fellow called me up, he said, Rabbi, you have to help me. And my daughters recently got married and they're having a lot of trouble. Please, please help me. He was in support of the shmuz. I said, fine. Anyway, the chassan contacted me that night. He said, listen, we can't meet tonight because we're still finishing Sheva Brachas, but can we meet Wednesday night? I said, oh my goodness. Meaning they weren't out of Sheva Brachas. And we're already dealing with the kind of stuff that like, 
uh. <laughs> you don't hear six years into a marriage. So what, what am I going to tell you? It, it seems to be very common now that the problems begin, begin surfacing way earlier, way deeper, and there's very little shoulder to the road. You either get it right, right away, or unfortunately, it becomes very, very dangerous and very damaging. So, so once you started to see that the questions are coming in and something needs to be done, more information needs to be acquired and delivered to the couples, and something needs to be fixed, where specifically did the Rav, where did you turn for that Chachma? So I learned my Rebbe, the Shiva Zetzal, Rebbe Leibowitz, was a tremendous pikeach about Musa, and he taught us the sodas of Musa. I had the opportunity to learn some about marriage from the Rashiva Zetzal because I was a young married when the Rashiva still was was healthy and well and teaching, and I did consult. But to be honest with you, it really had to be learned the hard way because unfortunately Rashiva Zetzal passed away now quite a number of years ago, and I was still a young man. So a lot of the knowledge and a lot of it was gained just simply by being out there, again, reading, dealing, understanding, and, and really understanding, you know, a lot of it are basics. Once you get it, and I'm sure if you read the book, you'll see, you'll begin to put the pattern together, gender differences. Once you understand that a man is significantly different than a woman, and you understand in what ways everything starts making sense, you start putting things together. And once you understand what a marriage needs, the relationship needs, and what is required, you begin to sort of like, you fill in the dots, it becomes sort of clear and obvious. So really a lot of what I did was just sort of, again, learn the Chazal's, you read various marriage books that are out there, the secular marriage. Again, I pretty much every popular marriage book that's out there, I believe I've read. Um, and, you know, eventually you put together the ideas, eventually you sort of sort things through, and eventually, hopefully, you put together something that makes sense and is able to allow a couple to live happily ever after. And and once the information, once you feel like you had the answers, the first place that you went was to put a book out? So initially, I began giving shurim, you know, because the shmuz is, you know, has a certain platform. So I put together the marriage seminar, um, which is a 12-part, you know, it's an audio lecture on how to live a happy marriage. I put that out and it became popular. I gave that a few times in public. I was speaking in various places. And after a while, you know, these it became clear, more and more clear to me that young couples especially don't have a clue. And what happens is they get married without having a clue. And they don't learn along the way because they make the same mistakes. They assume, oh, it's my husband. Oh, it's my wife. Eh, forget about it. And, and they never learn. Everybody wants to be happily married. No one wants to be in a miserable marriage or even in a lackluster marriage. The problem is, what could I do? It's my husband. It's my wife. What could I, we're, we're stuck. Getting married today is not a simple business at all. Everyone comes in with so much of a sense of entitlement. Everyone comes in with so much of a sense of it's me, about me. It's what I call WIIFM. Everyone's tuned into that radio station. What's in it for me? And when you come in with great emotional fragility, when you come in with tremendous sense of entitlement, and you come in with the understanding that this is going to be beautiful, my wife is going to serve my every need, my husband is going to solve my every emotional problem, uh, you come in fraught with fraught ready for disaster. The book was my attempt to bring some, shed some light, bring some understanding. And let people understand what's needed so you can correct it. Now, don't get me wrong, Paul. I want you to understand something. And many, many people call me up. Rabbi Shafer, can you help me? Rabbi Shafer, I have this problem. Rabbi Shafer, can I, I say, the first question I ask is, did you read the book? No. Would you read the book? Mm, no. Why not? Come on, I need a solution. The problem is obvious. My wife. The problem is obvious. Uh, get with the program. <clears throat> let me be very clear. If you're unwilling to work, 
you will not be successfully married. I don't care how good your midos are. I don't care how good your family is. If you're unable to change, if you're unable to grow, you will fail in marriage, period. But even if you're ready to work, and even if you're really ready and have the emotional fortitude to really change, unless you know what the work is, you're going to fail. Because unless you know what needs to be changed, what needs to be dealt with, how you need to speak, what you need to say, when you need to say it, you're not going to know what you're doing. You know, you don't drive a car without lessons. In California, it takes six months and and a tremendous amount of preparation to take a course to be a barber. But to get married, you take a test, 20 bucks, and you're in. It's very sad that in our society, there isn't a lot more preparation for marriage. And believe me, the parents spend an untold amount of money on the wedding and the prep and the gifts. But how about preparing the chosen and kala for what they're going to be in, the relationship that they're going to be in for the rest of their life, hopefully. Unfortunately, there's very little time spent. So the bottom line is you got to work, but you have to know what you're doing. And again, the book and the video book is my attempt to give some das and daya to what needs to be done. This is this was very interesting to me. There are 10 really dumb mistakes that smart couples make. And uh, I'm interested to hear how you how the Rav got down to just 10 and what sticks out by these mistakes. Okay, so to be honest with you, it was difficult to parse it down to 10. <laughs> I really had to. <clears throat> there are more. Uh, but these are the 10 most glaring, most common, and more than that, <clears throat> the most damaging. Let's deal with one that's so obvious. Very often, a couple, whether the husband or the wife, wants to help their spouse because they're good people, right? And so I can't help but notice what my spouse does wrong. And I point it out because, listen, I'm concerned. I want my spouse to be better. I want them to improve. So I can't help but point out what it is they do wrong. And what I don't understand is the damage that I wrought to the relationship. Now, the word criticism should be eradicated from any relationship, but especially the closer the relationship, the more it's damaging, the more it's destructive. But criticism doesn't mean I am criticizing you. <clears throat> criticism means anything where I point out that you could be better, you can improve, you're not doing properly. And husband and wife can't help but notice what each other does wrong. Listen, you're living in a closest proximity. You have a tremendous amount of things to do one with the other. And more than that, you're by nature different people. So it's always going to be my strength and my spouse's weakness that's going to be most glaring to me. So for instance, let's assume for a minute, I'm very neat and my spouse isn't. I'm very punctual and my spouse isn't. Now, clearly to me, punctuality and neatness is a key criteria. And I believe much of my success is due to it. And therefore, I can't help but notice that my spouse is not. And because she's not and I care for her, I'm going to want to point it out to her. I'm going to want to explain it to her. And I can't help but notice how often she's not on time or she's not neat. And it's costing her time, efficiency. It's costing the house. It's costing us embarrassment. And so I can't help but repeat and repeat and repeat how many times she would do better. It would be better. And what I'm not recognizing is the damage I'm bringing to the relationship. You see, this one single criteria, because it's my strength, and my spouse's weakness, and not only can I not help but notice it, but I can't even understand why doesn't she just change? It's so easy for me. It's so easy for me to be on time. It's so easy for me to be neat. Why don't you just do it as well? Obviously, you don't care. Obviously, you don't love me. Obviously, whatever you obviously is, but the simple reality that there's a different human being with different tendencies, different in interests, different inclinations than I never seems to cross my mind. And this is probably one of the biggest mistakes that very smart couples make. We become experts at what our spouse does wrong. Understanding my job is to be a best friend. The best friend supports. The best friend is helpful. A best friend sees the best and only the best. 
and a best friend is encouraging and not critical is a very, very important ingredient for a successful marriage. And it's so it's so eros- it's so corrosive to the relationship because if you're not careful about it, it'll be there all the time, every time. And after a while, your wife, your husband, whatever, realizes this person really doesn't approve of me, doesn't love me, doesn't really respect me. And the marriage very quickly heads south. The fourth mistake, forgetting that respect comes first. It, it caught my attention where it's presented in the book with a Rambam. And Yad HaZaka, Hilchas Ishos, Perak Tesvav, a real, this is a safer halacha. This is a, an insight on the Rambam where you have a diuk, uh, an inference in the Rambam, and you therefore put forth a chiddush, your own approach. Uh, I'd like to give the floor to the Rav to give this over in all of its glory. Okay, so I'm going to do it not from the Rambam. I want to tell you a story, and I'm, I think the story will an- illustrate it even better. You have a young couple <clears throat> walking down the street. He's on this side, she's on this side. As they're walking, he trips. As he trips, she says, Ive, are you okay? Are you all right? Okay, that's scene one. Let's look at scene two. Same couple <clears throat> walking down the street. As they're walking down, he trips, and she says, Klutz, what's wrong with you? Can't even walk down the street? What's the difference between scene one and scene two. What do you say? Maybe five years of marriage, one year in, right. five years scene in. Scene one is when the chassan and kala, scene two is when they're married already three years. Uh-huh. And this is the assault. You see, it's very easy to be respectful to other people. When I'm outside, I'm on my best behavior. I brush my hair before I go out. I straighten my tie because I know I'm in the public eye. But when I come home, suddenly I act myself and maybe even way too much myself. Wait, Now, you can't be formal in a marriage. You have to be comfortable and you have to be yourself. But you also have to remember that respect comes first. I cannot tell you how many times I hear couples speak to each other. Much that's the craziest idea I've ever heard. She was that's dumb, utterly dumb. Aye, Wait, you guys aye. like each other, let alone love each other? And when you speak that way to your spouse, not meaning to be harmful, not meaning, but it damages the relationship. And so understanding that respect comes first. Now, the Rambam is telling us that you're sowed in how to act. And it's, and it's sowed in a marriage, but it's something that you have to focus on and remember and see on a daily basis, and you have to remember it. Because again, in the heavy traffic of life, if you're not very cautious and very guarded, it's going to come out. And by the way, I have an important muster exercise. I believe the biggest, one of the greatest damages of our generation is that device called the phone. And whatever type of phone you have, but especially if it's a smartphone. However, there is one app on the smartphone and probably even on a regular phone that I believe is very useful. It's called the tape recorder. If you record a conversation between yourself and your spouse and you play back the conversation afterwards and listen very carefully, asking yourself one question, am I as respectful to my spouse as I am to other people? Am I as nice to my spouse as I am to other people? And do I speak with the same regard to my spouse as I do to other strangers? And, you know, there's a botan who likes to tell a joke. You know, it's a wedding joke, so it... It's done, you know, a couple of fighting. He says, she says, the phone rings. Hello. Oh, hi. How are you? Oh, great. Thank you so much for calling. Hang the phone. What happened? What happened is we know how to behave very well outside the home. Well, that's great. But you have to remember that it's even more important to behave that way in the home. But it requires focus. You see, I'm not meaning to. And good people with good midos, if you don't carefully check yourself, if you don't guard yourself, and you're going to slip down that slippery slope. So a tape recorder is a very good idea, but not to find what your spouse is doing wrong, to find where you're slipping up. How can I be more respectful? How can I be more appreciative? How can I speak in a way that will be better received? 
So in that sense, I think the tape recorder is a good, uh, good, uh, good device. In in the introduction to the book, one of the Haskamos is from Rabbi Per, I believe, the Rosh Hashiva yes. of YFR, Yeshiva Farakway. And he writes yes. there that the Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, the great um, inaugurator and the founder of the Musser movement, he writes that marriage is the laboratory for one's midos. And when it comes to this idea of the laboratory of marriage, what happened was that b- before marriage, you never had to live in so in such close proximity. You were never exactly. had such a magnifying glass. My chavrusa, you know, if I didn't respond nicely even to his svara and the gemara, it was, you know, it was okay. Right. So right. there's a clear difference that the rav suggests, though, between respect to one's wife and respect to one's husband. Can you elaborate on that? Okay, so this is really a major trapping in marriage. When you tell a woman, I want you to respect your husband, she begins treating her husband with respect as she would respect one of her friends. So I'll give you a classic example. Um, If you're not aware that men and women are different, let me let you in on the clue, a secret, men and women are different. But they're not topically different. They're not slightly different. They're different in every imaginable way, shape, and form. They're different in interests, different inclination, different in, in, in what they enjoy, what they're interested in. And one of the key distinctions is how they operate and what they re- perceive as respectful behavior. So watch. Here's a good example. A woman is baking cookies. And her friend sees how she's doing it, and she realizes if she would change the recipe or do things this way, it would be more efficient. Naturally, because she's a good person and a caring person, she shares with her friend how she could do even better. Listen, your cookies are great, but if you would do X, Y, and Z, it'd be even better. When she says those words, it's said out of love and concern, and her friend receives it that way. Okay, good. So I say to women, let's say you watch a guy changing a tire, and you go over to him and say, you know, hey, buddy, if you held the wrench this way, it'd be more efficient, you'd work better. What do you think his response is going to be? Oh, thank you so much for pointing that out. Uh, uh, I think you're asking for a fist fight. Why is it? Because males do not appreciate unsolicited advice. Hey, listen, I got this. If I needed help, I'd ask for it. But I, there's a there's someone in my distant family, a woman who, when she comes into the house, I, I try to leave. Why? Because she's so helpful. She, Madam, with all due respect, I don't have to tie my shoes. I got this. I'm, I'm you know, I'm a mature adult. I don't, she wants to help. She wants, that's very nice. Help you all your girlfriends. Help all you late. But... Do me a favor. It's not well received. And if a woman doesn't learn to recognize that her husband is built differently than she is, and what he considers respectful is very different than what she will consider respectful, and she doesn't learn his ins and outs, guess what? It's going to get very rougher. But she's so nice. And she's like, why does he get all upset at me? All I do is point out how much better he can be. And I only do it because I love it. That's very nice and very sweet. But you're rubbing salt in his wounds. You're basically pouring vinegar into his eyes. But I didn't do anything bad. What I do? So unless you understand the basic differences between men and women, you're going to do many things in your marriage thinking you're doing good things, not recognizing the damage you're going to do. And one of the key distinctions between men and women is respect, but it doesn't just stop there. It comes across the, the entire gamut of the human condition. And you have to really learn to be a student of your spouse. By the way, what are the two most important words in a marriage? The hardest words to say in a marriage is, I was wrong. I will. I will. I, I wasn't right. I, 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 I know I was wrong. She knows I was wrong. I know she knows I was wrong, but I can't say the words. So those have for sure the hardest words to say. However, the most important words in your marriage are the words, that's strange. That's strange. And the next time your spouse does something very, very inexplicable, and we get angry, we get upset, and we say things. 
If you train yourself to say that's strange, you might learn to step back and then with scientific curiosity, ask yourself this question. Why would she do that? She's a nice, kindly person. Why would she act so cruel? Why would she act so mean? When you step back and say to yourself, that's strange, and what you do is you open yourself up to actually understand the fundamentals of the emotional makeup of your spouse. But let me caution you. You say the words, that's strange, to yourself. You say, that's strange. And then you ask yourself, is my husband a creep? No. Is he an evil guy? No. So why would he act so cruel and callous? The answer is maybe because he has a different experience than I. Maybe because he perceives things differently than I do. And maybe because he means something totally different with what he said than the way I would mean when I said it. And when you step back and say that's strange, you begin to open yourself up to understand the emotional world of your spouse. So those words, that's strange, but said to yourself, are one of the key expressions in a successful marriage. To be, to be, if it feels like the most of our idea is to be at least mockier. Something's going on here, and maybe I should take a deep breath and think about this more. Yeah, and to you see, you know, to recognize that my experience is the way I experience things, but my experience doesn't define reality. You will experience the very same phenomena in a different way. You'll experience the same events. In a very, and you'll feel about it differently, you'll look at it differently, and you'll have a different approach. All you have to do is speak to a Harusa. I There was a Harusa I worked with for five years. I, there was no question in my mind that he would say things specifically to get me angry. He said things that were so ridiculous, so outlandish, I knew for a fact he could only be saying it to get me angry. The problem was 60% of the time he was right. And well, why is it? Because each human mind is different. As my face is different than your face, Chazal tells us my mind is different. My mind meaning to say the way I look at things, the way I perceive things, the way I think about things. So two men of the same gender who learn together are going to look at the same thing and view it totally differently. Could you imagine how much more so when it's a man and a woman who are opposite in nature, different in tendencies, inclination, and the essence of who they are, and they both live through the same phenomena, they're going to view it very differently. And unless you're able to step back and say, that's strange, why would my wife, who's normally nice and good, why would she act that way? And why would she carry on that way? Why? Why? So unless I'm able to step back and ask myself that question, I'm going to reach some conclusions that are unfair. She's either, she's a... I mean, she's nasty or she's emotional wreck or whatever, whatever demonic phrase we put in there. But the point is to understand that my experience is the way I experience it. But that doesn't mean that my spouse shares that same experience is one of the keys to a successful marriage. One of the uh, most enjoyable anecdotes uh, in the book that is one that I uh, bring up facetiously in my marriage quite often is the story of the couple that is visiting with you, and when the chassan walks out of the room and walks back in, the kala stands up for her husband. Uh, it's something that I've, uh, you know, tried to enact in my life, but uh, yeah. <laughs> no respect. You go talk over. about respect. Yeah, yeah. But uh, did that go? How well did that go over? I'd yeah. like to know. <laughs> Not so well, huh? Not so well, huh? <laughs> um. So but here's a great secret. Yeah. When you meet when you learn to meet her needs, 
she'll desperately desire to meet your needs. I Meaning you have to understand what her needs are, and she has to understand your needs. And that's the learning part. That's the educational piece. And that's the, the opening your eyes to understand life better part of it. But once you understand that and you learn to meet her needs, she will do everything in her power to meet your needs. Now, again, the problem is without an education, each party doesn't understand what the other one needs. And they provide for the opposite gender with their own, the way I would like it. And guess what? It's not the way she likes it. So no matter how much I provide that, and by the way, one of the favorite anecdotes in the book that I still, to the person we're married 36 years. And I mentioned this in the book, and it's still ongoing. Shabbos morning, typically I get up very early, the house is quiet, I learn it's a machaya. A few hours later in the morning, I'll bring my wife a coffee in bed. She likes to have a coffee in bed. To this day, I make the coffee and prepare the coffee. I reach in the refrigerator for the creamer and have to stop. Now, I want to give my wife a good cup of coffee. The, everyone knows the creamer makes it taste better, at least 4%, 4% fat milk. You got to, right, the skim milk doesn't even turn the... Yeah, the nothing, gun, nothing. Right? Uh. The problem is my wife doesn't like it. She likes her coffee with skim milk. And to this day, I have to, oh, but I want to give her a good cup of coffee. Why can't you just taste it? It tastes so much better. Mm -hmm. But understanding that my experience doesn't define reality is a condition that we all have to learn. It's it's part of growth. And again, Berkshire, this is 36 years now. Berkshire, we're happily married. But I'm telling you, it's a constant ongoing process. So really, it's two points. Even if you have good midos, and even if you're willing to work on it, if you don't understand the needs of your spouse, you can't possibly meet those needs, and you're going to inadvertently cause a lot of damage, a lot of disruption to your marriage. The entire book is, uh, in my mind, when I think about it, it flashes back to the sixth really dumb mistake. That is trying to change your spouse. At first, I did not understand it or perhaps agree with it. Because, well, let's say that uh, my wife is someone that, you know, she could use the chizuk in this area. Why not right. a good misilas yeshorim chavrusa about the importance right. of X, Y, or Z? And right. here you put forth in the book that do not help your wife, or I'm just uh, giving a, obviously you can explain it better, but do not try to change them. Don't give them muster shmuzim. Just accept and let it be. Please, please explain this. Because it is a hard one. Okay, so let, let's begin with the following. Again, here's invariably what I need to change in my spouse. It's going to be my strength and her weakness. So again, let's go back to the on time or late thing, or the neat then the sloppy. I see how important it is, so I can't help but, but point it out. So here's the question. I pointed it out to my spouse, and I made it clear, and it's obvious to me, why doesn't she just change? Why doesn't she just do it? I told my wife once, twice, three, a ten, a hundred times, I thought, why doesn't she just change? And the reason is because that's her nature. Invariably, what I want to change is a very essence of her temperament, her nature, inclinations. People who have ADD are just, that's how they're wired. And people who are very, you know, anxious, that's how they're wired. They're not going to change. You have to work on it. You find better coping me- mechanisms, fine. I get it. But at the end of the day, that's the nature of the person. Almost always what we're trying to change in our spouse is their very nature. And guess what? It's not going to change. But it's so easy for me. Exactly. Because that's your temperament. That's your wiring. That's how you're built. And it's easy for you. And that's why, because it's so easy for you, you want to help your spouse change. But she's not that built that way. She's not made that way. And it's near impossible for her to change. And the more you point it out, the more you wreck the damage. See, it never changes the, the character trait. It never changes the behavior. All it does is wreck the relationship. So I have a simple formula. If you want to be happily married, 
you either embrace your spouse as they are or you suffer. Because if you don't embrace her as she is, you're going to try to change, you're going to make every attempt in the world, and all you're going to do is wreck the relationship. She's not going to change, but you're going to wreck the relationship. So what I'm going to tell you, we all do it. It's it's just, it's a, it's endemic to the uh, to the human condition. We need to change our spouse. We need to. But the quicker you grab yourself and the more you realize how ineffective it is, how unfair it is. Because again, it's always going to be my strength and my spouse's weakness. And it's going to be her temperament. And when you realize that it can change, it's not going to change. It's not her job to change. My job is to learn to embrace and accept her as she is. <clears throat> and the more you do that, the happier you are. The more you don't do that, well, you pay the price. Mm. It's an initially sort of depressing idea. That's what I found at the beginning. Right here, it is. I have, or 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 it's you know. Let's let's. Uh, the conversation so far has been from the view of the male on the female, but this is equally mm-hmm. this whole conversation back way from the female on the male. I, I mean, it, it's 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 not it's not empowering. Okay, so Michal, here we go. Would you like to be happily married? I would indeed, yes. Okay, I have a critical Musser exercise. You need some courage, you need some moral fortitude, but this is one of the most critical Musser exercises for growth in any area. Are you ready? And yes. Okay, tomorrow morning, you go over to a mirror in your house when no one's around, and you look in the mirror and you point and you say these words, I am a difficult person to live with. I am a difficult person to live with. I am a difficult person to be. Say it three times. You mean my spouse? No. I. What do you mean? I, you mean I'm obnoxious? I'm a creep? No. And we all have stick. We all have idiosyncrasies. I'll prove to you a difficult person to live with. And Hashem created us imperfect. Gave us the mission of growing, changing ourselves, making ourselves perfect. That's our job. If you were perfect, you'd be done your job here. Be say some shalom. Game over. Let's hope you still got work to do and you still got time to do it. But that's the point. When I recognize that I am a difficult person to live with, I'm not obnoxious, I'm not a creep, but I got stuff, idiosyncrasies, quirks, whatever it may be. And when I recognize that and really look in the mirror and see that, it makes it a whole lot easier to accept my imperfect spouse. I am imperfect. My spouse is imperfect. Together, we are a perfect combination. On a regular basis, I've seen this, and I've said this to my wife uh, countless times. They're a match made in heaven living in Gehenna. They're two peas in a pod, exact opposites, and they're marshalling each other so well, except they keep bucking heads. Watch this. I recently had a couple where he was the biggest Baal Chesed in the world. She was not anywhere near as much, but she was very, very accomplished, accomplishment-oriented, and she'd work on the kids' homework, and he'd make sure that the kids were nice guys. And, and I said, you guys are a perfect match, perfect match. If you just learn to accept each other, she couldn't accept him, he couldn't accept... The point is... People have different tendencies, inclinations, temperaments, desires, different ways of doing things. And if you can embrace your spouse as your spouse is, you could be happy. If not, you're going to suffer. She's not going to change. She's not going to change. All you're going to do is wreck the relationship. But you have to understand she can change. It's her temperament. It's her nature. It's her inner being. And the only reason you demand that she changes because for you it's easy. When you look in the mirror and say, I'm a difficult person to live with, it becomes a whole lot easier to accept another difficult person to live with. It, this this idea also that a mensch is hardwired in. He has a natia. He <laughs> is, which is a, which is different than a mida, but he has a natia that is unchangeable, and this is the way it is. And no, Michal, let me be very blunt. I've been learning Musa for forty years now, a half hour to an hour a day, every day, on a regular basis. Okay, 
And I've worked on certain midos, and I've focused on them. And I can tell you that I budged them a teeny, tiny, teeny bit. But I'm telling you, after years and years of giving shurim on it and speaking about it and writing about it, I budged them a teeny, teeny, teeny bit. That's a midah that I have Muslim how to work on, and I can change, I'm supposed to change, and I budged it a teeny bit after 40 years. What are the odds that your spouse is going to change her inner nature? She's going to change her temperament, her wiring, the way she is. Well, why don't you just be organized? Why don't you just stop being so emotional? Why don't you just be... Because that's who she is. That's who he is. And if you could accept it, you could be happy. If not, well, let's see how that works out for you. So I leave my socks on the floor. So the Eitzah is that that I shouldn't change that, that my wife should accept that. Okay, now, so listen, listen, listen to very carefully. If I leave my socks on the floor, my job is to be a mensch. And my job is to pick him up. And my job is to work on what bothers my spouse as much as I can. And at the same time that I'm working as much as I can on that, my spouse's job is to accept me as I am. But both parts are necessary. You can't abdicate authority, responsibility here. You can't just say, I'm a slob and live with it. If you're a slob, okay, you got to work on it as much as you can. At the same time, your spouse has to recognize your shortcomings and limitations, and she can't demand of you more than what you're capable of. But you can't just abdicate and say, well, I'm off the hook because it bothers my spouse, tough luck. Your job is to stop everything in every which way you can that bothers your spouse. Your spouse's job is to embrace you as you are. Both you guys do your part. Life is beautiful. And the minute you look on the other side of Mechitzah, the minute you start looking on the other part, that's when things get really, really rough. So I want to kind of conclude here with the most exciting part, hopefully, of the interview. Hopefully the one that will give the listeners the most value and 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 hopefully they'll see that it is very much worth their time and money to acquire this book. And it's really a steal. Um, with that being said, I want to try to do some some uh, blazing, some rapid fire questions. These have been um, <clears throat> either sent to me, the people that I asked, you know, something that they would want to hear. Uh, number one, my husband has a very serious job and he makes a lot of money. He constantly is doing things for the family. However, I never see him. What should I do? You should buy the book and read it together with him. Because the reason why you don't see him is because he doesn't understand that you have a need that he may not have a need for. You have a need to talk. You have a need to communicate. You have a need to bond. Many, many husbands I met are happily married. Their wives aren't. Most guys are happily married. They provide for the family, work real hard, and they're really good guys. The problem is the wife has needs that he doesn't have. And if he doesn't understand your needs, he can't provide for them. And all your muscles and all your telling and all your guilt trips and all your tears aren't going to help. Buy the book, buy the video book, read it together with him, and hopefully he'll get an insight. His eyes will open up and he'll understand the female nature different than the male nature. And Michal, this is worth repeating. It is the husband's responsibility to romance his wife. The husband is responsible to romance his wife. It's his job. The man is responsible to plan the dates. The man is responsible for love notes, the gifts, all the texts, all the things a couple in love should be doing. The man is responsible to romance his wife. Question two. It is very important, and in fact, the seventh really dumb mistake that couples uh, mess up with is forgetting that talking means something different to women. A couple that is struggling to make conversation and they do not enjoy the conversations that they have, what would be a tip to add some productivity to their conversations? Okay, so let me let me start with the husband. 
And the Chazanish says you have to speak to your wife about things when you leave, when you're going out, you tell her where you're going. When you come back, you tell her what you did, you tell, tell her what happened in the day. I remember when we first got married, my wife asked me that question. So, how was your day? Okay. I mean, just okay? Yeah, it was okay. What, what do you want? Like, uh, it was okay. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't mean anything mean by it. I, but it, was, it was okay. Now, if a big deal happened, I, you know, I don't know, something, a Harusa dropped me, or I don't know what, I would tell, but everything else just... It took me a long time to understand, and really, I learned later, I owe my mother an apology. When a woman asks, how was your day, what she's asking is she wants to share her world with you, and wants you to share her world with her, and as a man, you have to learn to do that. You have to learn to share the details. My wife always asks me the details, and she knows by now I don't provide them well because I don't remember them, but it's your responsibility as a husband to provide the details. Ladies, you also have to recognize that your husband is not into the details as much, and it's not as important to him, and he doesn't need to hear every little step and every little nuance of what you met and who you met and how it happened. And save that for your girlfriends. Keep your girlfriends. Save the main content for your husband. But when you each learn your conversational needs, it's a whole lot easier to make pleasant, enjoyable conversation. Mm-hmm. It's the same theme keeps coming up. You got to get out of your own head and see it from someone else's point of view. I am schmoozing and learning with my Rosh Yeshiva. I'm teeth in the middle of Reb Chaim Al-Harambam. And my wife is incessantly calling me that there is a cockroach on the floor of the kitchen. What should I do? <laughs> right. So obviously, hang up on your wife and hang up on your marriage, right? This is the Pshan so, Rambam. This is the Pshan, Pshan Rambam exactly. at stake here. Right, 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 right. So you, you have to understand, and this is exactly the point. The reason why it's inconsequential and ridiculous to him is because in his experience, that's exactly what it is. And little bugs or things like this don't bother him. And understanding that your wife experiences things differently than you do. That to your wife, it's a terrifying moment. To your wife, it's really a big deal. By the way, I can't tell how many times guys say, she's flighty, she's so emotional. It's completely sheker. And women are not crybabies. Women are not... The difference is she feels it much more intensely. She feels it much more acutely. And because she feels it to a much greater extent, of course, it's going to affect her demeanor, defend the, impact her composition, how, how she feels. So you have to recognize she has a different emotionality, views things differently. And when you're able to do that, you're able to actually be sensitive because, you see, if I'm going to judge you by my experience, by my inner world, I can't be a nice guy. I can be the nicest guy in the world, but there are limits. Come on, yeah, a, a stupid cockroach? You want me to stop learning for a cockroach? Once I recognize that to my spouse, it's much more than that. To my spouse, it really matters and really important when I'm able to leave my own comfort zone and climb into the emotional world of my spouse. It's a whole lot easier for me to appreciate and recognize where she's coming from. And then I could actually be a nice guy in practice, not just in my own head. My spouse is constantly on their phone. When we are home at the dinner table, the phone is binging. When we go on a date, the phone is there, and I feel like they are not fully present. If I can't change my spouse and I should accept them, what am I left with? Okay, now, changing a spouse and asking them to shut the phone off are two different things. I believe every couple should have downtime from the phone. There is a lot of people aren't aware of this, but on most phones, there's a thing called the off switch. And most phones, I don't know if you were, most phones can actually be shut off. Now, a lot of people think that the Pentagon will stop functioning. Society will stop. Gravity will stop if I shut my phone off, but it will not. And if a couple should make up a regular time when they both shut the phones off. Now, if you have a babysitter, so fine. You leave one line unblocked, but it's one line. I had a couple once who they were uh, having a lot of shalom bias problems, and I convinced them finally to go on a date. 
And the rule was no smartphones. So afterwards, I asked the guy, how was the date? He said, eh, eh. I said, what do you mean? She was on the you know, BlackBerry all the time. I said, BlackBerry? I didn't even know you could hook it up. She found a way to hook up a BlackBerry to, to the existing line so she's able to still text her friends. You have to set good darn boundaries to allow for a marriage to flourish. And one of the important boundaries are there should be certain time with no phones, on a date, no phones, dinner time, no phones. There should be time when you as a couple connected, but that's not changing your spouse. That's creating boundaries for an effective marriage, for a good relationship. And that I encourage wholeheartedly. Should a couple have a weekly Chavrusa study session together, either on the this book, 10 Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make, or any sort of book? Is it is it something that is a topic that should be studied together weekly by a safer? Okay, so to be honest with you, reading the 10 Really Dumb Mistakes as a couple is a great idea if it works for you. And learning Musa Safer as a Chavrusa husband and wife is a great idea if it works for you. And any such Seder is a great idea if it works. For some couples it works, for some couples it doesn't. I got married and we started Mesil Sharm. First night, it went very well. Second night, it didn't go so well. The third night, my wife said, I don't think I want to learn anymore. I said, why not? My wife's a very firm woman. She wants to learn. And the answer is, I feel like it's a classroom. I feel like you're the, the teacher. I, I really, I got it. I got it. So since that time, we don't learn. I, why? My wife learns. She goes to Shurim all the time. She goes, this year, that year. But the answer is, there's a relationship called husband and wife. And husband and wife is not mentor and student, not Rebbe and Talmud. It's best friends who love each other. And if the Chavrusa ship works, great, do it. And again, if it does, I highly recommend doing the book together or the video book, because it's a great thing to do together. But that's only provided it actually works. If it becomes one of these finger-pointing sessions or becomes negative, then yeah, obviously you don't do it. And the last final question here, I do everything for my spouse. Yeah, they say thank you, but I feel totally underappreciated. What should I do? Okay. What should you do? You take a pad, and on this pad, you write down all the things your spouse does for you. And when you write that down, then every day for the next 30 days, you read it to yourself 10 times. She does this to me, she cleans, and she cooks, and she puts my socks away, and she does it. Read it over 10 times, and then you're going to feel something incredible, a sense of appreciation for your spouse. And then you're going to do the next step, because you appreciate what your spouse does for you, and you're going to compliment her and praise her and thank her for the things she does for you. And when you exhibit appreciation, a strange thing is going to happen. She's going to smile. She's going to be feel appreciated. She's going to feel loved. And suddenly she's going to change. And I guarantee she'll act far more appreciative back. Don't quetch. Don't complain. And you got a problem, work on it. Deal with it. Become appreciative. And you'll suddenly find the mirror of the relationship reflects back. Your spouse will reflect it back to you. Wow. 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 That's quite the ending. I mean, this is, we've only really touched on, I believe it's now three of the mistakes and in each very dumb mistake, uh, very expertly named, it's very dumb and the couples are very smart. It's really a world of its own. And the simple reality is everyone needs an education. You can either get the education the hard way. Many people never get the education. You take a book like this and you read it and you can, you know, there's an expression, wise men learn from others' mistakes while fools don't even learn from their own. If you're married and you're making mistakes and you don't understand what you're doing wrong, you can't correct them. Get some education. Read a book. And this is not the only book in the world. Many, many other books. Get an education. Understand marriage. Understand what you need. And suddenly you change the relationship. And suddenly she's not so biting. She's not so carping. Suddenly he's not such a creep. He's not so distant. 
You act differently, they act differently, you change the trajectory of the relationship, and you learn to be happily married. Rabbi Shaver, you're brilliant. I think that the uh, audience is going to gain a lot from this. Just the sheer hakara, the recognition of you know the work that needs to be done. It's probably a never-ending topic. So I thank you for your time. I thank you for your wisdom that you shared. And I look forward to the next book, the next platform, and bringing you back on to help us save the world. Thank you for listening to that episode. I hope you're well. This is Machal. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button and check out all the podcasts from the Motivation Congregation Podcast Network. Please reach out on WhatsApp. Let's talk. Let's fight about these varts. Let's grow and stag together. And if you would be so kind as to like and even write a review for the podcast, that also helps grow the platform and reach more people. And I guess if you want to be less kind, you can leave a bad review. I guess that works too. Either way, Smash the link below, reach out on WhatsApp, and let's be in touch. Have a great day. Kill them, can't